We've been on a whistle-stop tour of Romans because you could probably, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he preached on Romans, he didn't just do it over like a chapter a week or a bit out of every chapter for week after week. He preached on it, I think, for about two and a half, three years, you know, almost verse by verse. Well, I'm not quite Martin Lloyd-Jones by any means, so uh, it's unlikely that you'll get me preaching verse by verse. But... um, what we've been doing is we've been, uh, Paul has been showing us what sin is. He's been showing us how we try and deal with sin. He's been showing us attitudes towards our sinfulness. He has taken us um, through, he's told us all about Abraham and how God uh, made him a promise uh, that, he, that through his seed everything would be blessed and how by faith even in the, in, in the circumstances where everything seemed lost, he was endowed or Sarah was endowed with a child uh, which was his own, not by any other means. And we all know if, we, if we've been around church any time, and for those of you who might not have been around church long enough, Abraham, when he had the promise from God, got a little bit fed up waiting, so he tried to do it his way. And so he started with a a servant who he thought was going to inherit his estate, and then his wife gave him her her maidservant in order to give Abraham a child. And the reality is that that wasn't God's chosen path, because it was the son of promise that um, he had promised to Abraham that they would have. And when everything seemed lost, when she was too old and he was really too old and really she was, her womb was dead and past it, somehow God's miraculous intervention left them with a son who became the son of promise. And it says that Abraham It was counted to him as righteousness because he believed God in the midst of what seemed impossible. And so Paul's been sort of painting a picture through chapters 1 through the beginning of 5. He's been painting this picture which is almost, you you wonder whether there is any hope. And at the beginning of 5, he brings us right onto the top of of, of a mountain. And I talked last week about if you've ever been to the Lake District or Scotland and you've climbed you know, Scaffold Pike or, you know, um, Helvellyn or another, an, another tall place. The, the, the journey upwards, I call it tall place. What's the mountain in Scotland? I'd better throw one in for Scotland. Ben Nevis. And what's the one in Wales? Cadaridris or something like that. So I've covered the whole nation now. Um, so basically... Um, you go up to one of those places, the road up becomes really, really difficult. But once you get to the top, on a clear day, it becomes an absolute vista. And it's, it's beautiful. And you can look and you can just cast your eye around 360 degrees. And on a really good day, you can see mile after mile after mile ahead of you. And some of those views are breathtaking. And so last week we talked about how we can rejoice in the hope of glory, that we are standing on grace, that we have access by faith, that even when we 
find ourselves going through sufferings, it's not just suffering for suffering's sake. It is suffering with a purpose. And God works all things together for good to those that are called according to his purpose. And so we got there. And so today I just want to talk for a moment on the triumph of grace. The triumph of grace. Do you know, every one of you here this morning, who is sat here this morning, who believes in Jesus, who has surrendered your life to Jesus, who is seeking to follow Jesus, you are a triumph of grace. A trophy of grace. You're a beautiful individual because God has made you beautiful. You might look at yourself in the mirror and think, he doesn't see me first thing in the morning. But the reality is, you are a triumph of grace. You are a trophy of grace. You are beautiful because God's grace has touched your life. And so, that's where we are. The thing was with Paul, unfortunately, that he was so set on his ways in terms of grace that he was accused of what has been termed, and don't be frightened by the word, antinomianism, all right? Which means that grace, it's all grace. We don't have to worry because we're in. We've got this divine insurance policy. It doesn't matter how we live now. We're in, so we're all safe and we can do what we like. And Paul was accused of that here in the beginning of chapter 6. And so he begins to unpack for them, basically. He just begins to unpack for them the whole issue about why they shouldn't live that way. It is true that they are sinners, were sinners, whatever terminology you want to put to it. And that sin in and of itself are damaged. Now sin, I don't know, anybody like the film Robin Hood? Prince of Thieves, or I saw a Robin Hood film before the Prince of Thieves was out. And I don't even know, I can't even remember who the actor was um, in it. But, you know, men in tights type approach, you know. Anyway... Um, Robin Hood, one of the things that marked Robin Hood out was his accuracy with a bow and arrow. And he was able, not only when the person shot their arrow into the gold bullseye of the target, he was able to shoot his arrow and it split their arrow right down the middle, you know. So he didn't just get to the centre, he got to the centre centre. Well, the word, word sin at its basic form means missing the mark just the same as an archer would miss the mark. And we live in, a, in an age where the word sin is constantly, where people just don't like the word. And we, in our attempts to see people come to Christ, we have to bridge that horrible gap where we try and persuade somebody that they're actually a sinner. Because most people, a lot of people, don't actually, um, A, they don't like the word, and B, you know, they don't really see it. They don't really see it. But I want to guarantee you, if you stop trying to convince someone that they're a sinner and you ask them, have you ever missed the mark? No one, I cannot think of anyone who will be arrogant enough to say they have never missed the mark. 
I miss the mark every day of my life, as I'm sure you probably do. You see, I know who I am when you're not watching me. I do. I know who I am when you're not watching me. I know the times at home where I get short. Something's irritated me and I chunter away to myself. And sometimes my chunterings are not the best thing in the world. But I chunter away to myself. So I know that I miss the mark. Now most people are never going to have a difficulty admitting that they miss the mark. Missing the mark in their relationships. Missing the mark in their marriage. Missing the mark when they're as an employee at work. They're not going to have a problem with missing the mark because they know they do. They know they miss the mark when they pick up things, put them in their pocket and take them home from work. Maybe not intentionally, but those things sometimes, more often than not, never return to work either. So missing the mark is something that we are all, I won't say comfortable with, but that is what sin is. It's missing the mark. So at its basic format, you're never going to have anybody have a problem with that. And the result is that we can talk to people about missing the mark. And then Paul, we introduce people then to this idea that like Paul has, that listen, God has been so gracious. There's this triumph of grace. There's this thing that has taken place which sets us free from being separated from God. And it's Jesus. He was a gift. God's gift was free. It was a grace gift. You know, Claire tries to get money for us from um, different trusts. We're employing her to literally just spend her time trying to persuade people to give us money. And do you know, some of the things that she will apply for want to know what matched funding we're going to get. So they're not interested just in what they're going to give us. They want to know what we're going to be putting into the pot or someone else is going to be putting into the pot as well. And do you know, sometimes we approach salvation like that, like it's a matched funding bid. Okay, God, so you gave Jesus, he died on the cross, he was buried and rose again. Now, what do you need from me in order to complete the deal? To give me the funding that I need? Are you going to make up the shortfall? I've raised this amount, are you going to make up the shortfall? And do you know there is so much of what we do that is based around that idea, even if we don't like to admit it. I wonder how many of you, like me, at times has prayed, God, I promise you, if you get me out of this mess, I won't do it again. I've prayed that prayer, as a, not just as a child, not just as an adult, not just as someone training at Bible college, but in the ministry I've done that. I've knowing, studying theology, and I've still prayed prayers like that at times. God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll never do it again. And what happens a fortnight later? If I make a fortnight, you know? It's not a matched funding bid. When God decided to deal with the issue of sin, he he dealt with it. He cried out on the cross, Jesus, it is finished. In other words, there is nothing else that can be added. And so when we come to him... In humility and with faith and trust, 
and we accept the free gift that comes from him. Do you know there is nothing that can separate you then from his love? Nothing. That is the triumph of grace. You might be sat here this morning. All of us will have some form of secret sin. We won't like to talk about it. It could be our thought life. It could be our computer life. It could be the way in which we spend money. It can be in so many different ways. And sometimes we feel that if only others knew, A, they probably wouldn't like us too much, and B, I wonder whether God really likes me. But when you have come to him and you've taken his free gift, I want to tell you, Paul later in Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. Does that mean that God is always happy with the way we live? Probably not. Just like a parent, those of you who have been parents here, you will understand this. There are times where you love your child, but you don't like what they do necessarily. But does it stop you loving them? Really? Does it stop you loving them? When they're going through that testy phase of teenage years, and they start to flex their muscles because they now feel that they are an adult. And who are you to tell me what I can do and what I can't do? At those moments, I, I didn't like it when my two boys, my daughter was more cute than that, but um, my two boys, they were a bit blustery. And at that moment, I can't say I liked them very much for that moment, but I tell you one thing, I loved them with a passion. But right then and there in the moment, I didn't like them. But it wouldn't make me turn my back on them. I've got to tell you, for me, personally, there is nothing that my sons or my daughter could do which would make me turn my back on them. Nothing. Because they are my flesh and blood. I love them passionately. God loves us passionately. And therefore, we need to recognize that sin, even when we sin, it can't necessarily separate us in that estranged way. And we have that beautiful opportunity to come and confess our sins and he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Here, Paul starts talking about our sin. He talks about it in regard to baptism. And he makes this statement. He said, basically, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism was something that was part of the process of the early church becoming Christians. A man called David Pawson some years ago, he wrote a book called The Normal Christian Birth. And as if I remember right, the original, um, the very original book had a picture of someone standing in the waters of baptism on the cover. And David Pawson's argument was that so often we stop short of what is required in order to really come through and live in freedom. And he taught, um, you could almost accuse him of being a 12-step man, you know, AA or CA or Gambling Anonymous, whatever, because he talked about how when somebody decided to follow Jesus, they, they should have, they should at some point make this um, inventory of the sins in their life and, and deal with them, not just in prayer, but in restitution. And then he says that we need to pray over those areas of our life. And it wasn't as simple as just saying, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. But then we need to go through the waters of baptism and baptism has a meaning it's as you go down you're entering you are participating in the death of Christ so you are dying to who you were and as you go and are plunged under the water it's I don't want to mix metaphors but it's like having a bath so that you were filthy dirty and now when you come up hopefully you're clean um or it is that you've died and as Jesus rose and he came back and we know that he came back different because he said to Mary in the tomb, don't touch me. We know later on when he, the disciples were in a locked room, he walked into the room when the door was locked. There was a discernible change in who Jesus was. We know that when Jesus went into the waters of baptism recorded for us in Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel or John's gospel, um, we know that as he came up out of the water, that dove descended and the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. There was a change that was happening. Jesus was moving from one stage of his life in his baptism to another. In the same way, when we are baptized in water, we are changing our position from one part of our life into another. And so we're being raised up in newness of life. For if we've been united, Paul says, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now that means that in the, the, the annals of time, if we are to die before Christ returns, we will rise again. It means that if Christ returns, I will be changed in the twinkling of an eye into that person that God has purposed me to be. There is a change that takes place in us. 
And he goes on, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And so the body, when it goes into a burial chamber, it rots, it, it decays, and it changes. I don't mean to be macabre, but if you have ever seen someone who has died and been prepared for burial, you can recognize the body of the person who is in front of you, but you know that the individual, the personality, the person who was there is no longer present. This is literally a tent which contains who we are. And so there is this change, it's this moment of change. And why is it done that we would no longer be enslaved to sin? And so Paul is now saying, listen, this is the beautiful view that you can get. This is, grace is triumphant, grace is brilliant. Then there are those who want to say, well, does that mean I can just do what I like now? He goes, no, 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 you misunderstand. You are being transformed to live differently. You don't just have a freedom from sin, but you have a freedom to live in a different way. And baptism is all part of that process by which we move from one place to another in our walk with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That is the same for us. It doesn't mean our physical bodies will not die if Christ doesn't return first. But I will tell you, I will live on for eternity, as will you, if we've taken hold of that free gift of God's grace. Death no longer has dominion. It can no longer separate me from God. Even when I sin, we're forgiven from our sins of the past, our sins of the present, and the sins we will commit tomorrow and the day after and the day after. And I know that frightens people. You see, there are two types of Christians to me. There are probably three or four, but there are two types really for me. There are the law keepers and the freedom followers. In fact, Paul in Galatians says there are three types of Christian. Those who live in the freedom that they feel God has given them and they just live license. They don't care. Then there are those who revert Despite this is a free gift of God's grace, they revert to trying to earn God's approval and favour by the law. When what God wants us to do, he wants us to live in liberty. Knowing that the price has been paid for us, knowing nothing can separate us from God, not the sins we commit, they cannot separate us permanently from him. And the truth is, he wants us to live in that freedom. When I was a pastor in my younger years, I used to think everybody was, I can't, um, I've got a wrong phrase in my head. Will you forgive me if I use it? Right. Was hell-bent on getting away with what they could get away with. 
And then God one day, when I was in my study, I was talking to God about it. Had some things going on in church and I thought, God, why are people like this, you know? Why don't you do some smiting round here? You know? Just like you smite some flies, you know? Why don't you wave your divine fly swatter? I mean, they just, they, they, there's nothing about these people. And I was really going for it. And then God said to me, he said, he just asked me a question. He said, do you sin? I said, yeah, I probably just have by my prayer. He said, do you want to sin? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, what makes you think they want to sin? Why have you decided that they want to sin so much that they're a different breed to you? And I was cornered and I had nowhere to go. So I said, okay, Lord, I understand what you're telling me. You see, sometimes we think that people just want to sin. And I've preached sometimes thinking that the trouble is I've got to say it so straight that people will be frightened out of their wits not to do that again. But it don't work. It just doesn't work. Because unless there's an inner change, it doesn't matter how much fear you put there. It don't work. I don't believe we set out to sin. I don't believe we think we concentrate on the fruit. We need to cultivate the roots. That's what we need to do. And so Paul, for me, I love this thing about grace. He is absolutely obsessed with grace. But make no mistake, he is not giving us license to live how we want to without reference to him without reference to the way in which he wants us to live and therefore we have been set free from sin let's not use our freedom in a way that then dishonors him so we're freed from the dominion of sin and we're freed to live after him and so he finishes this first part of chapter six and he says let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions how do we do that don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness we have a choice when we come to christ we've definitely got a choice when we're presented with the opportunity to go one way or another, we have a choice. We either present our members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness or we present ourselves to God as those who have been bought or brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I believe genuinely that the majority of people try and live righteously, not even by the law. They want to live and be right with God. The problem is they struggle because when we get to the point where we are presented with opportunity sometimes, our resolve is not enough to keep us on the right side but I want to tell you we have the freedom to choose if we will train ourselves you know what does it says 
I can't remember where it says this, something like bodily training is a good idea, but basically we're better to train ourselves. Um, Somebody help me. Dave, do you know where that is in scripture? Got anybody got an idea where that is? I haven't. Yeah, it's a vague, I know it's my vague version of the Bible. Um, Forgive me for that. I just can't remember where it is. But in other words, we buffet our bodies. We give, there's physical training is good for you. But actually to train ourselves spiritually is best for us. And so we have the opportunity to choose. And finishing this section, and I'll close with this, for sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, you're under grace. That is a tremendous verse. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I love that. What a beautiful picture. I'm under grace. The triumph of grace. I'm a trophy of grace. I am a work in progress. In this life, as we go on and we get into Romans 8, we will find out. In fact, Romans 7, we're going to find out. Paul crying out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And then he goes into 8 where he makes this, therefore now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He's elated because he knows about his own wrestling with his own life. And yet, thank God there is no condemnation. You see, shame, guilt and condemnation has been removed. And therefore, I want to give you just one tip. If you ever come... If you've ever done something and you know that God is speaking to you about it and you pray and you are praying and asking God to forgive you and you just keep feeling more and more shame, I'm going to declare that comes from the pit of hell. That is the enemy and the enemy alone. Tell him to sling his hook and quote scripture to him that Jesus has paid the price for me. He loves me the way that I am and I'm on a journey being formed into the, the image, Christ's image, in order that I will bring glory to God. And therefore you get lost and I'll put myself in the hands of my heavenly father because he loves me. Let's pray. Father, this morning... Lord, we're at Christmas or we're approaching the Christmas thing, Lord, and we're going to be giving gifts to ones we love. And Lord, really the gift that is greatest of all is your love, your grace, your forgiveness. Lord, there's a whole stack under my Christmas tree. There's all these gifts wrapped up for me to open and to look at and be in awe of. Lord God, help us take on board the truth that we are genuinely triumphs of grace. We're trophies of grace. We're on a journey. Hopefully we're getting better. We're being more and more like you rather than not. But Lord, when we fall and we falter, 
Lord God, I want to ask you, Lord, will you help us be delivered from shame and guilt because you declared that once we put our faith and trust in you for the forgiveness of our sins, not based on any works of our own, that you would count it to us as righteousness. You would place that robe of righteousness on our shoulders that we can stand before you knowing full acceptance, full love, full care, full compassion. Lord, I just want to say this morning, thank you so much. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Thank you. (laughs) It's 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 8. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, Mm. having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Mm. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, bodily. Maybe I'll give up the gym now then. No. Um, But yeah. So it's about godliness, presenting ourselves as instruments of righteousness. Bless you.